I'm sure that we go around the room and all of us could share stories of times when we looked forward to something that we were so sure was going to be so awesome and then we got to the reality of the situation and it didn't have nearly as much awesome as we thought it was going to have. We've all had that vacation, that uh, hobby we were going to start, that fishing trip, that uh, birthday, that game we were going to go to where our team was going to win the championship, that first date we were going to go on with that special someone. And we get there and no one gets along on the vacation and it rains every day. The fish don't bite. Our team loses that uh, hobby's more expensive and less fun than we thought it was going to be. We go on that first date and the other person talks about themselves the entire time where they have ratty hair and cat breath. And it's just not as awesome as we thought it was going to be, right? We've all been there. Well, this morning's passage... It may be kind of like that because this really is a moment. Second Samuel chapter 2 is a moment we sort of have been waiting on, looking forward to. David and his men had to have been looking forward to the events that are recorded in this passage. David has been promised that he's going to be the next king. And the old king... King Saul, he's out of the way. So today's the day. David's going to be king. Now, this isn't a famous story. You, if you don't read ahead, you may, you may not know what's coming. And imagine if you hadn't, if we were reading this for the first time, if you were picturing in your mind what it would look like when David finally gets to be king. Like, what would you picture? Like parades, fanfare, throngs of people celebrating David the giant killer, finally our long-awaited king. I think it's probably what we would picture, but if you're picturing that, this passage might be a bit of a disappointment. Because this is a letdown in some respects of what it looks like when David finally gets to be king. We're going to read the first 11 verses of 2 Samuel chapter 2. As per normal, we're going to see what's, what's there, what it really says, and then we'll see if we can't figure out how this letdown maybe should have been exactly what we should expect. Where we pick up today, just to, to catch you up on sort of the plot line, the, the Philistines have just attacked Israel, routed Israel's army, killed King Saul and all of his sons, except for one whom we will meet today. David has led the nation through a, a season of mourning. And now David has to be like, okay, now what? And this is the now what? Second Samuel 
chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we read this. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I, shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to David, yeah, go up. So David said, where shall I go? And God said, to Hebron. So David went up there and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. And David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household, and they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came and there anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David saying, it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who buried Saul. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed of the Lord because you have shown this kindness to Saul, your Lord, and have buried him. Now may the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, and I also will show this goodness to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul, your Lord, is dead And also, the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And Abner made Ishbosheth king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, even over all Israel. Ishbosheth. Saul's son was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he was king for two years. The house of Judah, however, followed David. The time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Okay, where we begin this passage, David, he's, again, he's been promised by God, you're going to be the next king, but God didn't give David like a procedure manual a recipe to follow, a playbook. David has to think, all right, is this the time? But David doesn't want to get ahead of the Lord. David has learned. I don't know if you've noticed this, but at times to us humans, God can be a little unpredictable. Have you noticed that? And where David is at in verse 1, Uh, Is it a place called Ziklag, a place he never should have gone? And when he went to this place he never should have gone, he started doing things he never should have done that could have resulted in disaster. And the reason he went where he shouldn't have gone and started doing what he never should have done is because David got kind of sick and tired with the life he had, and he stopped doing what he does Today, today he inquired of the Lord. Before he moved to Ziklag, David stopped inquiring of the Lord. See if this sounds at all familiar. David got to a point in his life where he decided, I don't want to investigate what God would really want me to do. Because I've already decided to do something I'm pretty sure God doesn't want me to do. So I'm just not going to ask. I'm just not going to see what the Word of God would tell me to do or to not do. Anybody ever? Am I the only one that's ever? But today, 
David doesn't want to get out over his skis. He doesn't want to get ahead of the Lord. So in verse 1, he inquired of the Lord. We could go back in 1 Samuel and see what that looks like, but we won't. That just means Abiathar, the priest who was with him, has this thing called the ephod, and God had given Israel one way to ask him stuff. And David had that at his disposal. And so he asked God, should I go back to Judah? God says, yeah. He asked God, so where should I go? He says, go to Hebron. We're from Nebraska. We call it Hebron. That's fine. Hebron is a, uh, it's a place with a long history in Israel. It is at this time the most important city in Judah because Jerusalem doesn't belong to Israel yet. More on that later in this book. Uh, so it's the important city, but it's also, it's also special because it was designated in the law, the law of Moses, what Israel's constitution and case law. Hebron was, was designated a, a city of refuge. And here's what that means. A city of refuge seems really weird to us, but this is the way it worked. If someone was accused of what we would call manslaughter, or if, 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 like if I accidentally caused someone's death, I could run, flee to a city of refuge, and the family of that person like, couldn't retaliate against me until they went through legal proceedings and investigated the case. That's the way it worked. So God tells David, why don't you go to one of those cities of refuge? The only one in, the one in Judah is, is Hebron. Here's why that's important. Regime change in the ancient world was always violent. It will be this time too, unfortunately. It was always violent. It was full of intrigue and scheming and plotting. Well, all of a sudden, the old king is dead, Saul. Who killed him? The Philistines. Who was David just living with before the Philistines found King Saul? The Philistines. Might someone think, did David have something to do with the Philistines, knowing where to go and how to defeat Israel and where King Saul might be? So he goes to a city of refuge and over the next several weeks, including today, he's going to be sort of pleading his innocence to the nation. I didn't have anything to do with this. David also signals here that he is cutting all ties with the Philistines. He's burning his bridges. That's why we're told it wasn't just David who went to Hebron. It, David took his family. David brought all of his men and their families. This is a permanent relocation. And we're told when they got to Judah, the, the people of Judah anointed king, this is important, over the house of Judah. To understand this passage and the ones moving forward and really lots of stuff from here on out in the Old Testament, it's important to understand that Judah and Israel are not the same Thing. It's a little bit like saying Nebraska and the United States are not the same thing. Chase County and Nebraska are not the same thing, right? It's just 
one part in the larger thing. Judah was one tribe out of 12 tribes in Israel. Okay? So this is the anticlimactic part. David was promised that he was going to be king over Israel. And all we see today is he gets to be like governor of Nebraska instead of president of the United States. One tribe says he can be king over them. Let's move on. Second, third of the path. Now, it's not that this is insignificant. It's significant. He's king. But he has not yet received the fullness of God's promises. Let's move on. Second, third. As soon as David is anointed king over Judah, or king of the Jews, David learns of something we read about several weeks ago in our study through these books. David is told what happened to Saul's body. Because the Philistines, after they killed Saul and his sons, they took their bodies back to Philistia and kind of made sport of them, like hung them on a wall, like the worst pinata you've ever seen. And the men of, David is now learning, the men of Jabesh Gilead risked their lives to go take Saul and Jonathan and his other brothers' bodies down, take them back into Israeli-controlled territory and give them a respectful burial. David just learns that. And so in verses 5 through 7, David's going to send messengers to that city. It's, It's just a city called Jabesh, but it's the Jabesh that's in the region of Gilead. David's going to send messengers to be appreciative, but he's also going to be politically shrewd in these verses. First, the appreciative part. David in verse 5 tells him, basically, man, I hope God is good to you for that brave thing you did for King Saul after he had died. I recognize what you did was very brave, And I want you to know, I will be very good to you also. Don't miss the importance there. Remember, there's a regime change possibly coming. Jabesh Gilead is a a town that has a long history with King Saul. They're King Saul supporters. How did King Saul treat David while King Saul was alive? Not great. Bad. King Saul treated David like his enemy, didn't he? How do you think many people assumed David would treat the friends of King Saul once David becomes king? How do we normally treat people? Do you know? Naturally, normally, we treat people the way they treat us. Right? That's why in our little call to worship time, we're told don't return evil for evil. You know why we need to be told that? Naturally, it's what we do. David is sending a clear signal of just what's always been true. David wants everyone to know, I wasn't Saul's enemy. I mean, he might have treated me like an enemy, but I didn't ever consider him to be my enemy. 
David was always loyal to King Saul, even when King Saul was trying to kill him all the time. David wants them to know, I'm going to be good to you as king. It's really important, but the, the fascinating part, the really interesting part of this message to Jabesh Gilead from David comes in verse 7. Because here's where David becomes politically shrewd. There's an invitation in verse 7 that might be hidden to us, but it would not have been hidden to the people of Jabesh Gilead. Do you see it? David says, now, now that you know, I promise to be good to you. David says, let your hands be strong and valiant. He orders them. He tells them. He invites them. Be strong and courageous. But then he doesn't specifically spell out what he wants them to be strong and courageous to do. He says, you know, your old king is dead. The house of Judah has anointed me king over them. What's the invitation? What's he asking them to do? Why don't you recognize me as king up there? See, we don't know the geography, but Saul was from Benjamin. David is from Judah. Jabesh Gilead, my map's backwards. I'm trying to do it. All right. Jabesh Gilead is up here. It's in a different tribe, Manasseh. David is inviting them, be the first ones up north there to accept me as king. Is that going to take some courage? Might not everyone up there like it? Oh, yeah. That's why he says, be strong and courageous. Get in on the ground floor. I promise I'll be good to you. It will be important. People need to see I am not an enemy of Saul's friends. And he invites them to get on board. And by the way, we have no record of how they responded. But at least we understand the invitation. Now the last third of this passage, we learn of at least two men who would want no part of that kind of an invitation from David. Excuse me. The first one is a guy named, this is funny to me, but this is a guy named Abner, the son of Ner. Uh, do you know what Abner means? Abner means my dad is Ner. So, so we're told my dad is Ner, who's the son of Ner. Hey, thanks for clearing that up. We needed the, but Abner, the son of Ner, wants no part of David becoming king. We've met Abner before in 1 Samuel. David has known Abner for a long time. David was young when he killed Goliath, and he knew Abner then. There was that story, if you remember, uh, when God like anesthetized the whole uh, uh, Israeli army, and David and his nephew walked at night to where Saul was sleeping and stole Saul's spear and canteen. You remember that story? And then he yells across this canyon, that was at Abner that he was talking to at first. Abner is the top military commander in Saul's kingdom. He's been hunting David for who knows how long. He wants no part of David becoming king. So, 
we learn here that Saul had one son who survived, Ishbosheth. Those of you who may need boy names someday, just write down Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth, maybe he was just an administrative role. Maybe that's why he didn't fight. Maybe Saul always left at least one of his sons behind so that all of them couldn't die. I don't know. But one son survived, and we're told that Abner made Ishbosheth king. Abner was also uh, King Saul's uncle. So this, he takes his great nephew and makes him king. In verse 9, we're given a list of the places that these two actually rule over and then one place they claim to rule over. Remember, all of this stuff we're reading about is happening inside a defeated nation. This is the internal politics of a defeated nation. Because the Philistines just smack the soup out of the Israelites, right? There are, we know, there are Philistines living in Israelite cities after the Israelites fleed from them. So Abner and Ishbosheth, they rule over Gilead, which is a region, the Asherites, Jezreel, Ephraim, and Benjamin. That's what they rule over. But then they claim to rule over all of Israel, but he never does. Because the Philistines rule over a good chunk, and David rules over Judah. Now let me ask you a question about what we're reading here. Which guy has the real power? The king or the kingmaker? If Abner, the son of Ner, can choose who the next king is, doesn't he have more power than the guy who's called the king? He does. And you'll see that over the next couple of chapters. Ishbosheth might be called king, but Abner is called the man. He's the dude. In fact, there's a, there's a clue in here that Abner probably reigned longer than Ishbosheth did. You see where uh, Ishbosheth only he reigned for two years, but then immediately we're told that David during this time period was reigned seven years and six months. That should be the same amount of time, and it's not. Here's almost surely what happens: the Philistines attack their way down into Israel and kind of kick the snot out of Israel for a while. Abner, commander of the military, survives, retreats, and the guy who controls all the weapons controls what's left, right? The king is dead. He's got to set up defensive lines, making sure the Philistines can't take the rest of the territory. And at least for a time, Abner's like military tribunal over what's left of Saul's kingdom. He, wants, he, has, he has no interest in David becoming king. And so he rules for a while, but he has no claim to the throne. So he takes his great nephew, Ishbosheth, after apparently about five and a half years, and says, look, look, look here's, here's the real king, right? The puppet king puts him on a throne up north somewhere when really everyone kind of knows Abner's the guy with all the power. And that's why uh, Ishbosheth only made it two years. We'll see what happened to him later. 
before we, before we move on and talk about what we learn also, I want you to know Abner knows God has said David should be king. He's going to admit it in his own words in chapter 3. Why would a good Israelite know God says David's supposed to be king next? Why would he know that and go, eh, I don't think so? Why? Because he looks at the situation and says, Man, I don't know how David might treat me if David becomes king. And for sure, I'm, I'm the top military man in all of Israel. If David becomes king, that certainly won't be true anymore. Right? If, if David increases, I'm going to decrease. What's good for David seems like it might be less good for me. So I kind of don't care what God says. I'm going to pursue what seems like it would be better for me. That's the story of the sort of anticlimactic way David becomes sort of king, but not all the way king. What are we supposed to learn from a passage like this? Do you see how that's kind of an anticlimactic start to David's career as king? Maybe not what he had dreamed of when he laid in his bed at night. But this is sort of the way the kingdom of God on earth would always work. David's life and career often points toward his greatest descendant, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. His name is Jesus. This is no different. Once we know the story of Jesus, we should almost expect David's career as king to start in a kind of anticlimactic matter. This passage teaches us a lot about the way God's kingdom has always worked on earth. Let me show you. Each of these thirds that we studied of this passage teaches a different thing about how God's kingdom works on earth. First, the kingdom of God has always had a secret phase or a mustard seed phase. In today's passage, David was promised he was going to be king over all of Israel, right? David came and he got to be king but he didn't get to enjoy the, uh, immediately the fullness of that promise. Isn't that true? Well, David's great descendant, Jesus. Jesus came to earth and absolutely was the Christ, the Messiah, which is just a title for a very special king. God promised he was going to send a king that would reign over Israel from David's throne, but also over the whole world. And Jesus knew from the earliest moments of his ministry, he wasn't going to get all of that right away. In Mark chapter 4, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, Jesus' first words, by the way, of his public ministry were 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king's here. But immediately, he starts teaching his disciples stuff like this. Mark 4.11, he said to the disciples, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. You guys have been given the secret. But to those outside, they don't know the secret. Jesus said to his disciples, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. Would you like to know the secret of the kingdom of God? Do you want to know? I mean, I usually don't share secret information, but here, lean in real close. I'll tell you this. You ready? The secret of the kingdom is the kingdom is kind of a secret. That's what he says, isn't it? You guys know the secret. You know why it's a secret? Because not everybody else knows. That's what he says. Then in the same chapter, he says the kingdom of God is kind of like a mustard seed. When the disciples pictured the kingdom of God, do you think they would compare it to a mustard seed, which is really tiny and you would like miss it if you walked by it? No way. Do you see what Jesus was telling his disciples? For a time, the kingdom of God on earth isn't going to look like people would imagine. It's going to seem anticlimactic. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the king of kings and lord of lords? Does everyone know that? Why don't they know? Is it easy to go through this life and not know? Apparently. You know why? Because the kingdom's a secret. We know who the king is. It's an open secret. It's a secret we're supposed to share. But it's really easy to go through this life without knowing that the king is Jesus and his kingdom is growing, but in a sort of mustard seed, behind the scenes sort of way. That's how David's kingdom started. Anticlimactic, not all it was cracked up to be. Is it easy to think God's promises and God's plans are too small and too slow. It's easy to think that, but they're not. They're perfect. They're powerful. They're going to happen very quickly, just not yet. Okay, in the second part of this story where David uh, sends invitations to some people to get on board early, you see where we're going with this? David sends invitation to people. Hey, not everyone recognizes me as king, but you can be strong and courageous and accept me as your king, even though nobody around you is doing it. Don't you know that kingdom invitations are still being sent right now today? That's the way the kingdom of God works on earth it seems like a secret. It's, it's easy to miss, but the invitation is still going out. When Jesus came initially, he didn't come as a conquering warrior. He came with an invitation. Follow me. 
follow me. Does it take some courage? Might it be costly? Yeah. That's why Jesus in Matthew 16 said to his disciples, if anybody wants to be my follower, he has to deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. Whoever wants to save his life, oh, that seems too costly. I don't know what might, that might cost. I think I'm going to try to save my life. Well, the person who does that is just going to lose it. The person who's willing to lose his life for my sake will actually find it. What does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Jesus came with an invitation. Be an early adopter. Follow me. You see, the question of what you will do with Jesus is not, will I accept him as king? The only question is, when will I recognize Jesus as king? Because the day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess what? Oh, Jesus Christ is Lord. He's my boss. He's my master. Everyone's going to admit that. But the people who become early adopters, who accept the invitation now before the kingdom becomes obvious, they're the only ones that become part of the kingdom of the king when he becomes full-on king. Everyone who refuses to do that will just be the enemies the king destroys when he gets here. And in the last third, So kingdom invitations are still being sent. In the last third of this passage, where Abner tries to set up a competing kingdom, that teaches us this. The kingdom has always had rebels and rivals. Abner refused to recognize David as king. Why? He was scared of what it might cost him. He was scared of how David might treat him. And he thought, I can keep my position. I can have a better time. I can have a better life if I'm sort of my own king instead of accepting David as my king. Has that stopped happening? Or is that still happening today? Isn't that exactly why most people who learn the information about who the real king is, refuse to bow to the real king? It absolutely is. I'm scared of what people will say. I'm scared Jesus might make me change some things. I have no plans of changing. I don't like my, I like my priorities where they are at. And Jesus was clear over and over and over. That's a reasonable question to have, or a conversation to have in your head when confronted with the gospel. Do you know that? What will it cost me? What may have to change? Those are good questions because Jesus was very clear. Following him is costly. And sometimes it requires change and discomfort. Another time, Jesus taught this in Matthew 11. He said, come to me, all you who labor, who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. But don't miss this. He said, take my yoke upon you. 
Do you know what a yolk is? It's not the yellow part of an egg. Different word. A yolk is that thing that farmers used to put on the necks of work animals when the farmer wanted to make those animals do what he wanted them to do. Jesus said, come follow me. You can put my yoke on your neck. Maybe he should have worked on the messaging a little bit. It's a, it's a yoke. It's deciding, I'm going to let you call the shots in my life. Why would anyone decide to do that? Here's why. Because like our brother Jeff just said, we're going to worship something. We're going to serve something. Something's going to call the shots in my life. I am going to be controlled by something. I might be controlled by my anxiety. I might be controlled by my fears. I might be controlled by my just sinful lusts and passions. I might be controlled by my desire to be great and awesome and impressive. I might be controlled by my desire to have more and be more. But I'm going to be controlled by something. And Jesus' invitation is, why don't you be controlled by me? Why would you do that? Because I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. I will give you the rest you think you can get by chasing the other things you're being controlled by. Isn't that what we think? If I just get these desires in my heart, I'll go, oh, look, I've arrived. Look how awesome I am. It will never get there. Jesus says, put, put my yoke on you and I'll give you for free what you've been working for and have been unable to attain. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Yes, Jesus asks you to give him control, but being controlled by Jesus is better. So David once again becomes just an example of something that points to the real king, the great king. The kingdom of God has always had a secret mustard seed phase. We shouldn't be surprised that David's started that way. Kingdom invitations are still being sent. But the kingdom has always had people who refuse, who reject, who rebel, who think they know better, who think they can make a better life on their own. So let me ask you, where are you at with the king? Is he your Lord? Is he your master? Have you given him your neck for his yoke? It's better. It's better than what controls you. Let's pray. Our Father, how many times have I stiffened my neck against your yoke? How many times have I thrown off your yoke to kick against the goads? Thinking in my stubborn mule of a heart, I could do this better than the king.
Father, we're all in different places with you. Some of us, praise God, are submissive and being used of you. And I praise you for that. Others of us are still um, learning to learn from you like you said you would teach. And some of the rest of us have, have never even considered that you actually are the king. So God, in, in just a couple of minutes here while we pray, I pray you would meet each heart where it is before you. That we might wrestle with you and submit to you and offer our necks to your yoke in, in the way we need. For those of us who have never believed and accepted in you as Savior, I pray you'd work in hearts in that way. For the rest of us, Lord, I pray you'd help us submit ourselves voluntarily to be controlled by the one whose yoke is good and easy and light. We love you, Lord. And we long to see you become king in full. And we know that day is coming. Help us send more and more invitations before that day gets here. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand up and let's finish our time together.